Kenji didn't do his normal prep, Blake, though. So hopefully like, you have some prep done. I don't really so. want to talk about. I have an idea of what Ooh, I'd like good. to talk about. Okay, okay good. So, don't tell me. Just go. I guess I can't understress how important incentives are and alignment is with these kind of transactions. People start behaving as you incent them as a natural human mm-hmm. response to things. Everybody in this second deal has a long-term incentive that is fully aligned. That is the biggest damn difference. I mean, it's just the biggest thing that we did better. It is huge. And I'll say this is also a good opportunity to kind of watch Matthew and I, how our partnership works. Well, first, welcome to a special crossover episode of the Earmark Accounting Podcast and Drink While You Think. Woo! This is what um, the kids call a collab. This is what a collab. Ah, yes, I have heard this term. I am your host of the Earmark Accounting Podcast, Blake Oliver, CPA, and I am joined today by Kenji Kuramoto of Acuity and Drink While You Think, and Matthew. I'm Matthew May, the tech CPA. Also of Acuity. You two are the founders of Acuity, which has just been on a tear recently, it feels like. Is this public that you surpass the, is it seven figure mark in revenues? The eight-figure eight mark. Eight-figure mark. The 10 million Wait, yeah, revenue mark. So we're, we're 10 million revenue mark. Sorry, I'm I don't do a lot of accounting anymore. So I my digits yeah. are off. I think but congratulations uh, on that. I think with the latest uh, merger, we're gonna be running about 10.5 in revenue. Next year we'll put us in the top three hundred or top three fifty accounting firms in the United States without being really? an accounting firm. So uh, yeah, we're without top being four, an accounting firm, we're we're a top four hundred. If we were an accounting firm, we'd make the list, but we probably won't make the list because we won't fill out the paperwork. So, well, not that's unfair. Too, yeah, I know. <laughs> not truly an accounting firm, just because we, we were smart enough not to add assurance to our our practice. So I feel like that's unfair. Uh, yeah, so, we did. So to be on we, those to be on those the, lists, you have to be a CPA firm. I think you have to be an accounting firm, isn't it? The top yeah. accounting firms. So I well, think we're more. But if Eisner Amper, they're going to have to make a kind of an, an adjustment for, them, for that, right? right? So we are like the Eisner Amper private equity funded group. That's what we do. So everything because that they acuity, spun out. Yeah, Acuity is not a partnership. It's not a CPA firm. You run it under a corporate model, and that has allowed you guys to to grow in a way that I think a lot of accounting firms would be jealous of. When did it start? Oh. It started in 2004 in its earliest version. It was just advisory. It was just fractional CFO work. And that's all we were doing. We added fractional controller pretty quickly, just in Atlanta, because no one had any idea you could do services and over the computer and this thing called the cloud. So yeah, we were just in Atlanta. <laughs> then uh, things changed. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm excited about the growth because Acuity to me is a true cloud accounting firm. So it represents like the leading edge of this trend in pushing into the top 400, top 350 now. That's just congratulations on on all that. Yeah, it's thanks. Awesome to watch. I think it is. I mean, we're seeing that across a lot of other firms too. It's interesting. I had uh, one of my closest friends who's from Dallas, Texas, flew in today and I met him in our office because he took, after he flew in, took the subway up to our office. He gets to our office and he says, 
wait, how many people again are on your team here at Acuity? And I said, yeah, we're pushing about what, probably 140, 150, somewhere that we're getting up there. And he looked around at our little office, which is about the size of the room I'm sitting in right now. And he's like, I don't understand how that's possible. And I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> this is the way forward. This is what the cloud allows you to do. He's a big executive yeah. at Capital One where they have like campuses and things like that. So it just, I don't think it quite, he understood what was happening. Yeah, yeah. we have reduced our real estate footprint, I think, every year that I have been at Acuity. We have, it it's has like gotten the opposite of what you normally smaller. do. Yeah. Totally the opposite. So, and to give you an idea, we had 10 people. When I joined Acuity, and we had a bigger real estate footprint then than we do with 150 people today. It's kind of crazy. This is the way. This is the way. So this is a crossover episode of my show and your show, Drink While You Think. And you guys have a tradition. Yes, yes we think, do. Right? What, yes, do you, what, what do you drink it, Blake? That's, that's what we well, ask you. So I don't know if this is acceptable, but I'm having an espresso pod right now. It's it's a little or, earlier out there. And I think because this is unusual, it's a, it's a crossover, it's a collab, I think we'll accept that. Especially because, Blake, I think all of our previous history, I think we've definitely consumed enough alcohol together over the years that if you need to take a break this time, we'll allow it. Well, I could go run down and get some, some four peaks. Are you guys prepared? We're prepared. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Definitely. Why don't you guys start introducing your oh, beverages? Perfect. And then by the time I'm back, I can be the third one. Perfect. Oh, but then you won't Go know what it. we're drinking, but that's fine. He'll know when we rate it. Matthew, what do you got today? Well, I'll start. So I, I'm doing something new for me. It's a, the Pastry Archie. It's a candy cane imperial stout from Duclaw Brewing Company. I'll be in butcher that in Baltimore, Maryland. But it was in my local fridge here. And it's uh, an eight and a half percenter. So I'm really excited about having an imperial stout today. It's a, a little chilly here. So it's kind of nice. How about you, Kenji? The Pastry Archie. That's interesting. I thought it was going to be one of those pastry type of um, beers. I don't think it is. Because we've had one of those before and those were awful. So hopefully this one's better. I'm having, this is also in the vein of Matthew May. This is the Pay It Forward Cocoa Porter. I'm trying to be like Matthew here. That is my kind of beer, dude. This is, I believe, a Kentucky beer. And my wonderful mother-in-law actually subscribed me to a beer delivery program. So I get beer on subscription. And this is what I got in the mail this week. So we're going to try this out. Very Matthew May-like. Blake, you said you've got, what, four peaks? Whew, I'm winded. (laughs) Uh, I did run downstairs and I am back. I have a Four Peaks Brewing Company solar-powered seltzer. You have to show, you have to, it's online for us too. So you gotta, you go, okay, awesome. We're gonna show it on the video. It's called Sunday. The flavor is prickly pear, Mm -hmm. which is appropriate because I'm coming to you from Scottsdale, Arizona. 99 calories, 4% ABV. I think technically it's a malt beverage, technically. It's not, not not a beer, not even a seltzer. Are they calling seltzers malt beverages these days? Well, I think it depends on how it's made, right? Because you guys probably know more about this than me, but they make it more like a beer than a... They say yeah. seltzer on the can, but it's not really. Yeah. I think it's a way to say there's alcohol in it, but it's not beer. They used to do that to really, really high gravity beers. They'd call them malt beverages or malt liquor. Not that I've ever consumed any malt liquor, but I have. What were the um, the silver 40s that people would get um, in there's college? There's Schlitz. Schlitz malt liquor or silver. There's there a different one. Old there's English, the good OE. That was kind of a gold yeah. color. The original OE. Some of that was consumed <laughs> when we were in Scottsdale. I remember Scott Scarano was consuming that. So, Oh, uh, really? I can't get into that anymore. 
But uh, anyway, cheers, cheers everybody. Cheers, cheers, guys. cheers, cheers, gentlemen. As usual, mm. I have a fancy glass while you suckers drink out of the can. I just spilled all over myself. If you're on the YouTube edition, you can see Blake spilling beer on himself. And if you're just listening to the podcast, that's okay. Blake, Blake's not that's as right. embarrassed. That's, that's mm. right. So. so I'll just be embarrassed on your YouTube channel. So, yep, gentlemen, right. yeah, I did have a topic that I've been playing around with in my head, which is, uh, you know, you guys have been growing both organically and through acquisition, and you have made two recently that I'm aware of. One, Kenji, I heard you speak about. It was yes. very enjoyable at a conference we were at. We were at an accounting salon in New Correct. Orleans. And you spoke about a merger that didn't go, or an acquisition that didn't go exactly as you two had planned. Correct. And then you also announced another acquisition merger of a firm I know well called Catching Clouds, specializing in e-commerce, Patty Scharf and Scott Scharf. So far, it seems like that's gone well, very well. I, I was thinking for the title of this, it would be A Tale of Two Mergers. <laughs> a Tale Ooh, of Two but, Mergers. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. Oh, awesome. So, so maybe like we could that. talk, maybe you could tell the story. You and Matthew could tell the story of these two mergers. And Absolutely. What went well and what was different, what didn't go well, and what you learned from them. I'd love yeah. to hear this. I'll say on the first one that we did, and this was a firm we did in New Hampshire, I think Matthew and I came up with a thesis about you know what we thought was going to happen in the, in the overall accounting landscape. A lot of this came from listening to you and David on the Cloud Accounting Podcast and really being struck by... The, the metric that was put out there about something around like 75% of the AICPA members were getting ready to hit retirement age. Yeah, I think you you discussed on the podcast that, hey, maybe the AICPA needs to freshen up their membership a little bit. But also, we knew that even if that was an exaggerated number and maybe didn't represent what was happening in the entire profession, that there were a lot of firm owners who were going to be looking to probably exit. I think that started the conversation with Matthew and I about there's probably some opportunity here to help out fellow accountants, call the generation ahead of us who needed to hand off clients and team members somewhere. We felt like we were getting of a size and scale to where let's maybe take a look at doing that. We did that within a particular group called PASBA, the Professional Association of Small Business Accountants. Their big actual fall meetings coming up next week. Matthew and I are going to be up there in Nashville. And we thought, well, if a lot of these firms operate similarly to one another and we go and acquire one of them and it works well, that may give us a really nice pipeline to go and do more of these. And so that was the original thesis behind it and kind of how we got started. Is that what you re recollect, Matthew? I think, um, you know, we were aware that uh, some of the firms in that group in particular and some of the older retiring firm owners use what they would confess to be outdated technology and aren't in the cloud fully. But one of the reasons why we chose PASBA kind of as a target is that they're aligned on so many other philosophical things on running the business, from how we pay employees to transparency. I'm in a group of other firm owners, and the sharing is on a par above Zero and QuickBooks ecosystems with other firm owners uh, to where we really dig in on each other's numbers and really kind of work together. So there's a great collaboration effort. It checked a lot of boxes. When I think about it, there's two huge takeaways that I have from the first one. The first was when you have a firm already in play and you're going to acquire another firm, if you have a process that you think is good, which we do, if you acquire another firm, you almost have to onboard every single client onto your process. So it's almost like a new customer acquisition. So you have to take their clients through a pain point. 
If somebody had just bought the firm that we bought and didn't have another practice, they would have been fine. They would have been able to continue it on. They would have been able to transition it in an orderly manner to cloud accounting over time as their clients opted in or whatever. But because we had a methodology, we were a little naive. We literally have to run onboarding for every single client because they've got to run our process to be in our CRM, to be in our uh, workflow tool, to be in all those things. So there's a huge... I'll call it gap of naivete that we had on the technology infrastructure side and process side. The second thing is, I feel like we wrote one of the most beneficial deals, just deal structures that we could have written for ourselves at Acuity, the first deal that we did. In doing so, we created complete disalignment with the other owner as soon as things started going not great. Complete disalignment. So we protected ourselves financially, but in doing so, created complete disalignment where Meaning, we have... What, yeah, what does that mean? Like they, they didn't have an incentive to make it they work. They had an incentive to maximize revenue instead of maximizing like the effective churn. So like it was easier for him to go look for new clients and start selling other stuff and anything that would stick, even if it was not an ideal client profile for us, which our team works on really hard. Like he was filling the funnel because he was feeling the pressure that some of these clients were going to churn. But he was filling the funnel with anything that sticks. So like a street return is not something we do. And behind the scene, he's signing up street returns, which was totally not a part of our agreement. Street return is lingo for... Uh, just somebody a, just, just a walks, re- like a one-time return. We okay. only work on monthly... Walk, something yeah. like that. So those are the two huge takeaways from my perspective. We're, we had the chasm or the gap of naivety on the technology onboarding side. And then we had this complete disalignment recreated with the structure we put in place that we thought was going to protect ourselves financially and ended up we ended up throwing it away because everybody needed to walk away and just come to some reasonable meeting of the minds and just go their separate ways, which we did last month. On top of that too, Blake, I'll say, the other thing that happened is because we were looking at this as a customer acquisition vehicle, we were able to metric that fairly easily against, well, how fast do we normally acquire that level of customers? And so we had a very strong start to the year. Our sales and marketing team closed the same number of, of clients that we acquired within a 90-day window directly after the acquisition. So it was a little bit like, wait a minute, we're already acquiring this to high pace of vetted clients who we who have a profile that fit us. And you start thinking, well, where do you want to place those bets of putting dollars toward? Do you want to put them in acquisitions and you have all this stuff that Matthew mentions some of the naivete around systems and things? Or do you just say, hey, we should probably be doubling down on what works already? That was also running at the same time, giving us a very in-the-face data point of like, maybe we need to uh-huh. rethink this a bit. So this is interesting because I, I love the original intent behind this whole merger. It was create a scalable process to bring in a small firm that's part of this network. If you can do it for one, you can do it for many. So you then have a pathway to grow inorganically or through acquisition with many of these firms that are going to retire. And you can build a reputation. So everyone comes to you and you just have this cookie cutter approach at a certain point. Yep. That was the idea. I I think that thesis was correct because we immediately had how many other Matthew, like immediately other firms of that group who were like, can we be next without us even reaching out? Two immediately, they were like, I literally want to be next. Yeah, we were, of course, like, oh, time out. We're still trying to absorb this. So that thesis was correct. We just weren't, we weren't prepared for how different these firms operate that are more traditional. They're in our same space. I would say that these are probably firms that 
probably looked a lot like all of ours just a generation ago, but they haven't adopted to the same technology standards we have in the same processes. And that was much more difficult to integrate than I, I think I ever imagined. But to your point, the thesis was correct. The other thing it did was for me, and I don't know if Matthew, you feel this way, I needed to kind of demystify mergers and acquisitions. You hear about it, it sounds exciting, and it's like, wow, this is a big, scary, sometimes like exciting, kind of all these emotions. At the end of the day, it's a business transaction. And I think we all know that, but you kind of needed to get, I needed to get through my first one to kind of go, oh, okay, well, that's all it is. It's a transaction you run. So I take that away still as of great value to me personally. I think others would find the same thing of like, okay, that demystified what something to me was like, whoa, almost not taboo, but of like, wow, M&A is so crazy. It's not, it's a transaction. There's things we should do better next time. And we did thankfully on the next one. It's like in the startup world, everybody has to have a failed startup or they have to have worked for one at some point. You, you have to experience it. That is so, I mean, I hear more people talk about that. Like who, who do you want to invest in their next time around? Like, I'm not investing in someone who hasn't had a failure yet, right? So you hear a lot of VCs yeah. talk about that. You, you you do need to go through those. And we were, I think at least wise enough to know that we, we did a good job of setting financial expectations that we weren't taking on too much risk with this. It was about the size that things could go sideways if they did, and it wouldn't hurt us too much as a firm overall. And we were at least going to learn something. And I'll say too, that we did it with an individual who owned the firm who we had a lot of respect and trust in, who was trying absolutely his best to make it work too. And so there were a lot of things that stacked up in the right direction, even though the end result was like, okay, we're not going to follow that thesis. Well, and in your defense, this was all happening during pandemic times. So you couldn't go there in person. And this firm was very far away from where you guys are in Atlanta. That was complete hubris, I think, on our part. And just kind of, again, more naivete of like, well, wait, we do everything in the cloud. Yes, we do. I look back and I think the combination of that, trying to do that during the pandemic. Also, we did it right before tax season. I don't know, Matthew, you remember, I, you and I looked at each other afterwards. We're like, what? We, we kind of thought it was kind of, ooh, this is kind of funny and us being a little crazy acuity trying something new. And I think we looked at each other afterwards. We're like, well, that was just dumb. It's a learning experience. Well, I have more questions about this merger that didn't work out, uh, acquisition that didn't work out first before we move on. Then we'll talk about the fun one. It did work out. It didn't work out at the level we wanted it to, to be fair. So, so the deal, I, I did the deal get canceled or are you still acquiring all these no, clients? No, like, we just, we still have the clients. We still have team have, members in there. Yeah. yeah. It's the just founder, not performing like you'd hoped. The, it's not performing as either side would have hoped. And we probably lost a couple of good employees from the other side that we wish we had retained if we had been in person earlier and stuff like that mm-hmm. without COVID. Gotcha. And, I mean, I wouldn't call it a failure. I just, I just would say it just didn't meet our expectations. Like we wanted it to be a Let's go. Let's do the next one. Let's do ten more. And it was not that. that. Yeah, it was and it was that, it was yeah. it was humbling because we're usually pretty good so, about getting stuff done. The sticking point was it was the clients and the firm were on older technology, and so for you to onboard those clients and the staff onto Acuity's cloud stack was very disruptive, difficult, challenging. I mean, yeah. you mentioned staff left, yeah. right? Did they leave because they didn't want to learn new things? Is that part of it? Uh, or No, I think people hate change, right? Generally, customers and employees both hate change generally. And then we didn't do a good job of being on site to help reassure people. Like They didn't understand who we were kind of character-wise and we're these folks in Atlanta. Mm. Like 
popping in on video chats, sending whatever if they're checking Slack. You can imagine like going from a weekly status meeting in an office to a video update in Slack from Kenji. Like that's how big of a culture shock they were in for. And it's just, it can feel impersonal when we're trying to respect their time at home, right? (laughs) We're trying to respect their work time. And it feels impersonal if you aren't used to it. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of things in that vein that we learned. We learned a lot. It, it, yeah, the first time it. we got up there, I remember going up there. You got there first, Matthew, but Lisa and I went, our COO and I went up there just after you. And we were all kind of up there in the kind of the May time frame. So we're talking six months afterwards. After and, the, yeah. After we so you do the deal, deal yep. tax season comes, and then everything sort of pauses for six months. And then you get up there. <laughs> So, so I think that cadence is like, so Matthew had an interesting theory when we were in the middle of this and it was still, we were still thinking about, okay, do we keep doing more of these? And this was like, you know what, we're just going to modify the timing aspect of this. What he had initially thought of was like, hey, maybe what we need to do is work during tax season to kind of target some of these firms. And then we don't start anything until just after initial tax deadline. And then we use the summertime as our integration period. We initially thought that it was like, okay, we just screwed up on the timing side. And that was just one of many of the things that we kind of underestimated. But once we got further into that, and once we saw everybody there, it was interesting because it was it was definitely the facepalm emoji. Like in real life, you were like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we're here in front of them. They're all looking in and talking to us. We're like, oh, I get it now. I get what you're doing. You're real people. Yes, you use a whole bunch of different technology Acuity does than they do. They started seeing like, oh, this is a next iteration of where the profession needs to go to. But during that six-month period when we couldn't get there, I think a lot of people were kind of freaked out by who we are and were like, hey, I need to go find a regular job where I can do accounting with normal people who aren't doing everything on the cloud and all these crazy different systems and tools. Had we gotten there earlier, I think we would have been able to get ahead of that a bit. What an interesting takeaway. I mean, we've been living in the cloud for a decade now, and there's still some things that we just cannot do remotely. You need to be there in person for this kind of thing. And I'll say also too, I've learned through more and more people as we've shared this story of how many situations are out there where actually the vast, it sounds like the vast majority of the profession is still just like that firm. I, I tend to get very myopic and think of when I'm spending my time with Blake and David or Amanda Aguilar or Will Lopez, this is the big community. It's not. I, no. I'm shocked by how we are still a small part on the front edge of our profession. And there is still a lot, most of it that is just like that. They're doing things like after the fact payroll or doing taking on just random returns from anybody who shows up on April 14th with a lot of paperwork in hand. There's still most of the professions doing that, which again, I, I needed to have that bubble kind of burst in my world. So before we move on to the second merger in our tale of two mergers, it sounds like you're actually still planning to go this route or is that incorrect? Like the PASBA, let's talk to these firms, you know, bring them in. Is I don't, that still uh, on? One of the really interesting things, and we've done a lot of research on the space and we've been through some private equity talks and stuff like that with different private equity firms about doing a roll up is one of the things about our ecosystem that most people aren't aware of is that there's about 100,000 accounting firms like ours in the United States. The problem is it's really diverse. They're usually between half a million and two million in revenue. One of our challenges is our sales team can do that in a quarter. So our challenge is why not just do this organically and just continue to scale our sales team and our pod because it, it actually 
smooths out the the time frame on which we would onboard these clients, which we figured out we have to do if we run the PASPA model. Right. You have to onboard the clients anyway. If you're acquiring them organically, you have to onboard them. So they're spaced out though no. better. They're spaced out through the quarter as opposed right. to doing spaced out. So instead of doing one org acquisition a quarter, so our sales team does the same as acquiring a million dollar firm, probably every six months. But in a good quarter, we do it in a quarter. Every six months, yeah. we acquire a firm organically right now with our sales team. It's kind of weird based right. on well, the and, people that we would buy. And when I talk to folks about firm valuation multiples and traditional firms and cloud firms, traditional firms, you know, it seems to be getting lower bit by bit below that one times ARR. I think the reason is basically because modern firms are realizing we can just acquire their customers. We don't have to acquire the firm. We can just get the customers that want to change. Just to give you a sense of cost, it, it costs us about a third to do it organically as it is to do it inorganically. Because you don't have to buy out the equity in the firm. Yeah, you're just sales and marketing costs to so acquire we, those customers. We spent about $350,000 in Q1 to acquire $800,000 worth of business. For a firm right now, you pay dollar for dollar. So if you acquire right. a $800,000 firm, you pay $800,000 if you're lucky. Yeah, you so should just start making 50 cents on the dollar offers. Right? We, we, we didn't talk about that. We talked about that if we were to do, you know, so your, to your question, to your actual question, Blake, we do more of this. This is very typical of Matthew and I. We do love placing bets on things. We love running experiments. I think that's probably, I think about when people think, oh, you guys are unique at acuity. The only thing unique about us is I think our risk tolerance is a little bit different. We just like to do things a little funky. We don't mind making mistakes. We don't mind coming on here and talking about them or talking about them at a conference because I think for us, it's interesting. The byproduct has been it's given us opportunity to try things out and we don't worry about it so much. And I think that is where going through a transaction like this you may say, even when it was, wasn't was working, we were like, well, maybe what we do next time is just put an advertisement on our website and say, hey, we're acquiring, if you want to sell us any of your clients and they fit within these basic parameters, we'll pay you right now 50 cents on the dollar. What, what would yeah, that Cash be? up front. It's yeah. like, sell. Uh, we buy ugly houses. We buy ugly houses. Yeah. Just do that, right? As And say, well, yeah. no, we, don't want, we don't actually want to go through buying the firm or all the, all the things with people. Like if we're going to be just clear about all we want is customers- then just do an offer for just the customers and let people say the mm -hmm. customers. So I, I don't, who knows whether we'll do more of those, but I think that, that would, I would encourage yeah. people to open their mindset to like, try things out, experiment a little bit. Sometimes they don't go as well as you'd like them to, but you do get a better picture of the overall landscape of the profession, where people are, where your firm sits. And it certainly helped us identify a lot of weaknesses and areas we had to get better in. I, I don't know whether we'll do more of these or maybe someday it'll just come to the Acuity page and see a big old sign on it saying... We buy ugly clients. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, there's two sides of this, right? There's a customer acquisition side and an employee acquisition side. So last year, we acquired about 30 employees through the acquisitions, but we hired 35 organically. So you have the same, same onboarding issues same on thing. both sides, yeah. right? It's so, easier to onboard somebody who comes to you voluntarily than somebody who comes to you through a merger, I'm a sure. A million percent, yes. We, yeah. People hate change. It's a good transition to other firm. Like that is very different depending on the firm, like what we so, learned very much. Perfect transition, right? Because the second merger in our tail is Catching Clouds, joining Acuity. I feel like it's going to be a very different story, even though I haven't heard it, because Catching Clouds was already cloud-based, niched to serve e-commerce clients. How many employees were they at? 20? 20. They're, something? they're not 20, 20 yet. 30. 
So decent sized cloud-based firm coming into Acuity. Tell me about this. What's going well? When when did it happen? So it, happened, it, happens, um, it happened really it, fast. <laughs> really, really fast. Yeah. But from a timing perspective, the conversation started happening in June of this past year. And then we dug in with the July and then the deal is done and announced on August 1st. So it was a very was a short period of time. Like a hundred days. To be of differences, we had a long-term relationship with Patty and Scott and the Catching Clouds team. We've been we view them as peers, and in many, for many regards, people we look up to and firms we look up to. And so that relationship had been there since our early days of being on the Zero Partner Advisory Council and just knowing them in the community is well, something e-commerce pops up, you need to talk to Patty and Scott. And so we had a bit of a history there, which I think helped us on that timeline for sure. What made it different than the the first merger? I think the main thing was alignment. So we did an all equity deal for the second deal. And we didn't do any earnouts, so no earnouts. We got rid of the earnout concept completely. So that's not weighing over anybody's head. Nobody's worried about disalignment for the first 18 months based on how old clients do or new clients do either side. We agreed how much of the business we we would all each own. At the same time, we also our COO bought 5% of the practice. So we now have five of us that own the practice, which was alignment that was important to both sides to m- make happen. Is something that we had thought about on our side for a long time. And Patty and Scott, when they were doing diligence on us, it was like, yeah, this has to happen for this deal to happen. We have that alignment piece. And I guess I can't understress how important incentives are and alignment is with these kind of transactions. Because people start behaving as you incent them as a natural human Mm -hmm. response to things. Everybody in this second deal has a long-term incentive that is fully aligned. That is the biggest damn difference. It's just the biggest thing that we did better. It is huge. And I'll say this is also a good opportunity to kind of watch Matthew and I, how our partnership works. Matthew is absolutely a guru guru when it comes to deal structure. So he's going to speak in terms of the way that we structured this deal. And it was drastically different than the first one. And that is absolutely true. It made a huge difference. But I also think on top of that, too, of things that were different, not just the alignment, absolutely the alignment from the equity component and going forward, but our vision for what we thought was possible in the accounting space. In one case, you've got someone who's, honestly, the industry is running past them and technology is running past them and they're going, hey, I got to get out. And I get that. We'd like to help. If, if there's cases we could help with that, we'd like to do that. This is very different when you look at front runners in the industry of Patty and Scott who are saying there's a better way to serve clients. There's a better way to have our profession be more relevant. And we get together and right out of the gate, sat down in Patty and Scott's living room and talked about what we wanted to do. Theirs was a, we're not done. There is so much more work that we have to do in this profession to make it better for small businesses, particularly to make it better for people that work in the profession. That right away, we're like, these are very aligned visions. I think the vision component of what we all wanted, along with how we structured the deal, made all the difference in the world. First deal was partner doesn't really want to adapt to the times, wants to basically exit. And so you create an incentive plan that was designed around that, unfortunately created some 
perverse incentives or incentives that worked against what you were trying to achieve. In this one, it's all equity. So it creates a really powerful incentive to make everything work, to stay long-term. But then my question is, how do you create liquidity? Because eventually people are going to want to retire or maybe want to exit. Do you have a provision in there for that? For everybody except for me and Kenji, we were able to accomplish that. So you guys are stuck. (laughs) This second merger was great for us in that we've also been thinking about that, right? Kenji's real old and I'm 46. So, (laughs) I mean, we don't even talk about how old he is. One of the things we're trying to figure out is how to create that liquidity for owners long term. For like, how do you monetize to get out so you don't feel trapped? I think that's one of the problems. One of the things Patty and Scott like is they can get out at any time, the way we structured the deal. We have a mechanism for them to get out and leave and go do stuff. So if they're like not happy, which is one of our core values, happy, they can get out. Lisa's the same way. Lisa can get out. She can say, oh, okay, we build this great thing. Long term, we'd like to do that for me and Kenji. But I think we have to be about $20 in revenue because then we need some outside help to be able to finance those kind of exits. That'll be interesting. So we built that structure for the rest of them. And I think we've been driving toward having a place to where anyone, Matthew and I or other people can enter and exit the organization and I'll be clear, not just partners. Like this would be my ideal state. Is okay, that was going to be my question. If yeah. you come, I, I think we're very influenced by the startup community because we do a lot of work in it. Um, it's helped us in many regards think about innovation within the accounting space by looking at what happens with tech startups. And you think about those who get equity or get options. You've had this many times, Blake, where mm-hmm. you get options equity. The challenge with that is if it's not in a, a way that you can monitor, it's great that you get ownership along the way that should allow you, theoretically, that if value increases during your time there, you get rewarded for that. However, because lots of startups are not liquid, they're private companies, it's hard to sometimes monetize that. The idea down the road, and I thought this was interesting because I heard some allusions to this by, um, I guess it was Charles Weinstein, the CEO of Eisner Amper, which I thought was mm-hmm. fascinating what they did. Part of that capital raise sounds like it's there to provide a liquidity mechanism to attract great people and to give them incentive to come work there. Not saying we would go raise private equity, but if we could find a way to not just the partner level, but any team members who come to work for you to be able to get some form of an instrument that when they, if they ever decide to leave, whether it's retiring, go finding some passion project, whatever it might be, founding their own thing, that they could get value for that time period there. I think that's what we'd love to see, whether that's possible or not through some of the different mechanisms out there. I think that's been one of the fun challenges that Matthew and I have been trying to try to think through and take, take some inspiration from others out there of how you get there, because that's just not something you see in the profession today, and I think it's lacking. It's interesting you brought up Eisner Amper, because I just had the opportunity to interview Charlie Weinstein for this podcast. Oh, wow. This week, as we record, it's early November, and I spoke to him about that transaction with Towerbrook. I think it's Towerbrook Capital Partners. Yep, yep. While he couldn't divulge all of the terms... I did get the understanding that the the idea is to always have a pool of cash available and the partners have stock. They do not have a partnership share anymore. This is in the uh, the non-attest part of the firm. The partners, every he said, hopefully every four to five years, there's going to be a liquidity event and you'll have the option then to sell your stock and exit if you want 
or keep working, but you'll, you'll be able to trade your equity for cash, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's really interesting because it changes the dynamic of a firm where now you don't have to stay until you retire mm -hmm. to see the value of your equity. You're not committing for life to a firm, which it's kind of crazy that that's even still something that people talk about. Absolutely. And, and you compare it to the startup world, which is the opposite, which is what I was attracted into. So I was a manager at a big firm. And here I was presented with the idea of going into a technology company where I get stock options, or I'm going to stay and try to make partner at a firm. And there's no real defined path. What does it even mean? Once, Even when you become partner, it's not really clear what exactly the value of your partnership is. So That's right. And I think that you, it's just interesting as you think about ways into which you can find, you can get people motivated and incentivized. And they should be, I believe, incentivized on creating value from when they step in the organization to whenever they leave and exit. If we can help figure out like a way to give people that value during that time period, I think that solves a lot of the challenges we have. When you mentioned, Blake, about like, hey, that model used to be you sign up to start an accounting firm for life. To me, it's the exact reason we see those statistics from the AICPA about why there are so many people who are at the end of their professional career who are still stuck with these firms. And much of the professions kind of either being held back by that or passing it by and they're stuck and they don't know where to go with it. If there are other opportunities to monetize yep. that or liquidate that throughout the road, they could have handed that off to someone who's like, Hey, I'm the next generation. I really want to come in here and make some changes. But the way that we structured accounting firms doesn't allow that today. There's no liquidity. Nothing. That's yep. really the None. key problem is all this equity is trapped in these trapped. traditional structures. And if we can free it up, well, we all know what happens in the economy when we have liquidity. And when we don't, it's a disaster. It so is. why is accounting any different? That's exactly right. Um, so what's interesting though about what you're saying that's kind of revolutionary or could be anyway, is that Eisner Amper is not offering this to anyone but partners. Mm -hmm. Only the partners are going to get to enjoy this liquidity and equity. But you're talking about maybe... Everybody. We're trying to... Everybody. like Our ideal is that everybody would be able to do that. And, and, and again, I think it's more akin to what we've seen on the technology landscape. Every yep, but, employee in many places comes in and gets options commiserate to their roles and uh, the value they provide to the organization. But I think... And that's what I, I like about... Well, one thing, I think we're really different from a lot of people in that we don't have that model where it's up or out. You come into our organization, people are like 10 to 20 years into their career, like being an accountant or a controller or a CFO, and you don't have to move up. There is huge value in all three of those positions. Why wouldn't we try to push down that equity to those folks? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me that we would marginalize that. I get in a traditional audit model where it's like up or out, that's fine, but I think there's tax people like that. I think there's accountants like that. They are good at what they do. Don't Peter principle people and make them go up to the whatever the <laughs> promote them till they're incompetent, right? It's just awful. Yeah. Let them do what they like doing. And not everyone wants to manage a team. Mm -mm. Not everybody wants to do what a traditional partner does and make it rain. That seems to be one of those things you have to do as a partner a lot of the time. And it's hard to become a partner if you don't. It's just so much that, that we can fix about accounting. And so, so great to, to hear that you guys are thinking about those things. I think, you know, if we'd like to, we'd like to really try to move it here in the next yeah. few years to action, unless probably thinking, but it took us 
We're actually excited because we'll be in Nashville next week. It's me and Matthew's retreat that we take to go actually spend time talking about these things. Sometimes we actually get some work done. Sometimes we just come up with madcap ideas and drink a bunch of wine and beer and, and just enjoy the conversation. But we are trying to move that down the path. And there've been some others in the space. I think Liz Mason's doing a nice job of thinking about that. She's been really helpful to me in thinking about it. I think there's a lot happening outside of the profession that we could look to for mm. some inspiration and for some direction on and ways to do this because I, I think it really helps us. Yes, competitively, do we acuity want to go out there and just get all the best people? Of course we do. I also actually even more so like to see all the great people come to the accounting profession, say, hey, this is yep. a profession that I should come and work in. And we'd love to see more students, more people, wherever they are in their career go, hey, this is a great profession to work in. And I think there are some things we should be doing as firm owners to help attract them because right now it's- We're shutting them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's hard. For, it'd be hard for me. I have a, I have a kid in college who's, who's not going into accounting, but if he's been like, hey, should I go work in a traditional accounting firm model? I'm like, it'd be a little tough to want to recommend that. Well, you know, hey, it's been great talking to both of you. I feel like I've kind of monopolized this episode. It, it is a crossover episode. So are, are there any- traditions you have on drink while you think that we need to hit before we go? Well, we definitely have to rate our beers. Yeah. We rate our beers. So I've got Matthews pulled up here. I don't think there's screen sharing in this wonderful. Um, there is not. What you need to do is first of all, follow Matthew and I on the app. It's called untapped U N T A P P D Okay. for all your social kind of beer stuff. And you can find us on there by drink while you think. Look for us in the profile. So we go on there and rate all of our beers from a scale of one to five, half increments. Matthew, the pastry arky Mexican hot chocolate, what do you give it? This is the candy cane imperial stout. Oh, oh the candy cane. Hold on. Let me find they have a Mexican hot chocolate? That would have been like a 10. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you picked that one. No, I've that, got yeah. the candy cane imperial stout. I would have preferred the Mexican hot chocolate. If you can find the candy cane imperial stout, it's a 4.25. It's quarter point oh. increments, Blake, just so. Pretty solid. Oh, boy. That's quite detailed. 4.25 for Matthew. While Blake's thinking about his still, I'm going to do my pay it forward. And I'm going to give this, it's good. I didn't get much of the, it's a cocoa porter. Didn't get a ton of chocolate or cocoa in there. So I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go 3.75. For false I'm advertising, tell, I'm, I'm a, I'm a tell, yeah. For false, no. They could have like a little bit more. Uh, a three five three seven five is like a solid beer, Blake. Like anything four, you could not like seek it out to buy it again, you know. And then like five so, is like best beer ever. So maybe you can help me with the rating scale because to me, I mean, this is like my, my favorite seltzer for out by the pool. It's Arizona. It's a hundred and five degrees. This is what I I like to drink by the pool. I. My dad would say, put that in a five. That's like my favorite. Yeah. Like four, seven, five, five. My dad would be like, Corona was his five. He's like, I, I, I've yeah, been drinking Corona for 40 years. Like, it's pretty funny. I, I was looking, so. it was funny. I was looking at our stats, Matthew, before we got on. And I'm like, what have been all of our fives? And I'm like, why is there a Corona at five? And I'm like, oh, I forgot. Your dad always drinks Corona. So he just gave it a five. Do whatever you want to do, Blake. But what do you think on the Sunday? Let's give it a 4.75. So there's a little room to Okay. Move okay. Up. I like it. I like it. And it's made with solar power, guys. That's the this is sustainable. Oh, don't <laughs> so, okay. we'll we'll have some more. Uh, we'll do another episode on earmark about when we we'll have another announcement. Hopefully, in a couple months around sustainability, and we'll talk about that. I would love to. ESG is the hot thing. Ooh, it's hot, baby. We'll have some All right. announcements there. So.
Thank you, guys. So great well, to chat with you. Well, Happy Friday. Wait, wait, wait. We have to do this because I've always wanted to do this. Blake, how do okay. we find you? On How do people contact you if they want to see you? You can find <laughs> me on Twitter. I am at Blake T. Oliver. How about you, Matthew? I'm the tech CPA on all the socials. <laughs> and Kenji? I am Kenji Kuramoto. So all good, of luck. Who, good luck yeah, finding well, Kenji Kuramoto if you can if you can spell so it. So all of the real people here in the room actually use their real names. Some people use weird made up pseudonyms. So good luck with that, <laughs> Matthew. And if you'd like to send me a message or send me a voice memo, that's even better because then I can play it on the show. Email that to Blake at BlakeOliver.com. Kenji... Matthew, it has been so great talking with you. I'm Blake Oliver, CPA. This has been a collab between the Drink While You Think YouTube channel and the Earmark Accounting Podcast. Well, now the Drink While You Think podcast launched two weeks ago. So it, oh. you can actually, we can cross over while you're listening to Blake's. If you like Blake's, add us too. We're going to start dropping podcast episodes. Listen and subscribe. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey everyone, Blake here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to get CPE for listening to episodes like this one and many more accounting and tax podcasts, go to earmarkcpe.com, sign up and get early access when the app launches later in 2021.